Please be seated. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. If you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 978. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, and we've been coming straight through, and now we're spending the second of two weeks on chapter 5, this section, verses 21 through 33. And we're talking about marriage. We're talking about the roles of marriage, and one of the things I said last week was that last week's sermon and this week's sermon have to go together. Um, So if if you're just visiting for the first time this week, know that we said half of what needs to be said last week. Last week we talked about what the Bible has to say about gender roles and what it has to say about wives submitting to their husbands. And this morning we're going to take a look and see what this passage tells us about husbands in marriage. So before we turn to this text together... Uh, Let's turn to the Lord and pray and ask Him to be with us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You now and ask that You would open up Your Word to us and open up our hearts to Your Word, that we might hear You, that You might continue Your good work by Your Spirit of changing us, and that part of that change would mean uh, changing and healing and growing and flourishing our marriages. And we ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So let's look again at our passage of Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 21, actually verse 22, going through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, as we said, we're looking at marriage. We talked about the first half of that last week, and one of the things that we discussed last week was a definition of marriage, which I didn't defend, but just presented for us. And, and, and here's, here's what we said about marriage. It doesn't say everything, but it does say something. Marriage is about, it's about ministry. It's about bringing all of your gifts and your abilities and your energy to the good of your spouse in order to serve your spouse. That's what both people in a marriage are doing. They're ministering to each other. The illustration we used was that, was that of a dance. We talked about when you waltz, when you go to a ball and dance. In that particular kind of dance, one person leads and one person follows. And what Scripture tells us about marriage is that it, it too, is a dance. And one person leads and one person follows. And this morning, we're looking at the second half of this. What's a husband's role in marriage? And here it is. Here's what a husband's called to do, to love his wife. Okay, now we'll look at three, three aspects of that this morning. We're going to look at the call to love, the pattern of love, and the purpose of love. The call to love, the pattern of love, 
and the purpose of love. First, the call to love. Three times in this passage, verse 25, verse 28, verse 33, three times in this passage, Paul tells husbands to love their wives. Now, it's not very often in Scripture that in the space of, such, of so few verses that, three, that something is said three times. It's a way of emphasizing it. If you've read the book of 1 John, you know every time, every few verses it seems in John, John is telling his church, he's saying, brothers, love one another. Love one another. The book of 1 John is a helpful broken letter, a broken record, coming back and around and around. Love your brother. And we have a similar emphasis here. Husbands, love your wives. He's trying to emphasize something for us, and we need to listen to it. Okay, now the first thing about this call to love for husbands is that um, it is based on verse 23. What does it say here? It says that a husband is the head of the wife. Now again, we talked about that last week, so I can't cover it again now, but it says the husband is the head of the wife. That a husband's call to love is rooted in his function as head of his marriage. Now we said last week that headship involves authority. Okay, but what kind of authority is it? That's the, that's the $10 million question right here. If a husband has authority, what kind of authority is it? Well, authority in Scripture is a call and a responsibility to serve. Authority is always linked to service, to your care for someone else, to your giving yourself away. Maybe you remember this passage from Mark chapter 10. Uh, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, uh, have come to Jesus with this request, and they've said basically this, this kingdom that you are bringing in, when it arrives in its fullness, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left? They were asking for places of authority and honor. Now, when the rest of the disciples hear about this, they're miffed, to say the least. And they take John and James to task on this. And listen, though, what Jesus says to all of them. They're frustrated because those are places they would want themselves. But here's what Jesus says, verse 42, Mark 10. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve but to, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we could spend the whole sermon on this one point, that authority, headship in the kingdom of God is for service. See, the logic of this verse isn't that you are head, so you now can rule and oppress. The logic of this verse is that you are head, husbands, for the purpose of loving your wife and bringing out what is best for her and in her. Brian Chappell, in his book, Each for the Other, says this, Biblical headship is simply the exercise of a God-given authority, whereby a man does all that is within his power to see that love, justice, and mercy rule in his home, even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. Okay, the call in this passage for husbands is that you would love. Now, here's the problem. In so many of our marriages, that this call goes unanswered. The problem is, that, is not that male headship is embraced too readily, but that so often it's not embraced at all. 
Okay, and most men in most marriages tend to fall in one of two errors in this way. One is a dangerous control. Okay, on the one hand, some folks hear headship and they hear license for personal preference. Okay, back to Brian Chappell's book, he tells a story of this couple that he knew, young couple, and the husband said, when I'm at home and I'm relaxing and my wife has work to do, and she asks me to do something to help her. He says, every time that happens, I flip a mental coin. And if my mental coin comes up heads, then I'll get up and help her. But if it comes up tails, then I don't, because it's important to emphasize to her that I'm the head of this house, and I don't just jump when she says, please come help. Okay, if you think that's what headship is, no wonder it sounds so offensive. That one way to fall off the horse is a dangerous control. More likely, though, that uh, even if we fall on this side of things, we might be more subtle than that. Now, we would never flip a mental coin. Nothing as crass as that, but how about, how about this? Uh, maybe you or husbands are the one who's always holding the TV remote. Maybe you're the one with your feet propped up reading the paper while the cooking, the cleaning, the playing, the life of your family is happening around you but not with you. Maybe you win every disagreement with your spouse. Maybe your spouse and you never disagree anymore because your wife has given up on trying to disagree with you. Maybe the confidence in the life of your wife has slowly ebbed over the years because you become a micromanager, one who has to make every decision, one who has to control by being hyper-involved in everything, from your wife's wardrobe to her daily schedule to the smallest detail of her life. It is possible to not answer this call to headship by being dangerously in control. Now, there's another way. Not only dangerous control, but dangerous withdrawal, that we would be passive. And honestly, this is most likely the case in most of our marriages. Headship becomes an excuse to disengage from all the parts of married and family life that are distasteful or difficult or inconvenient for you. And the, the ironic thing is this can happen to men who are very much engaged in other parts of their life. Uh, for men who have vibrant careers, where they're very involved and are given a lot of responsibility and know how to take charge, that they can be the CEO of their company, rule it and lead it, govern it well, and come home and utterly disengage, be completely passive in their families. We can go about our families in such a way that if we did that in our job, we would be fired tomorrow because you can't disengage your brain from your work the way many of us tend to disengage our brains from our families. Or not just your job, maybe your leisure. You come to the things that you enjoy in life, the hobbies that you have with great passion, with great diligence. But you don't bring that same passion and diligence to your own marriage. A number of years ago, a man that I know who's a, a husband and a father said this to me. He said that over the years, most of my attention, most of my effort, most of my time has gone into my work rather than into my family. Because I, I felt successful at work, but I didn't feel successful at home. And what happened? He disengaged. What happens when you let this kind of passivity take over in your marriage? You don't engage, you don't lead, you don't love. You might criticize, but you don't roll up your sleeves and get involved in the thick of it. Why? Well, maybe you're frightened. Maybe you think, well, I, okay, I've tried to lead my, my family, I've tried to lead my spouse before, and I got bitten in the process, uh, and I'm scared that might happen again. I tried to speak in my wife's life once, 
10, 15 years ago, and it didn't, it didn't go so well. And so I've backed up since then. Maybe you are frightened. Or maybe you're just plain selfish. Maybe you've thought this or done what I've done and actually said this in the presence of your family. I just want everyone to leave me alone. <laughs> what happens? Headship that's used to avoid all the difficulties of your life and to avoid the real responsibility of stepping into the relationship of your marriage. My guess is that more women struggle in their marriage because they have a dangerously passive husband than because they have a dangerously controlling or dominant husband. But you see, neither control nor withdrawal is love. Paul calls us in this passage to love our spouses. This is what we're called to. Okay, the call to love. Second thing, the pattern of love. There are actually two patterns in this passage that Paul points us to. Look in verse 25. Paul says, first, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This first pattern of loving your wife, what's it to look like? Like Christ's love for the church, giving himself up for her. How did he do that? Well, one way he did that was that he died for her. He gave his life for her. He gave himself up for her in the most profound way. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us, his church, his bride. But the ironic thing is we found a, we found a way to twist this. Okay? Of course I would die for my wife. And husbands, we can all picture ways this might work out. If the house were burning down, I would give my life in order to get my wife to safety. If terrorists broke into my house and threw a hand grenade into my bedroom, I would dive on that hand grenade for my wife. I would do that. I would give myself for her. If we were ever mugged, I would step in front of my wife and I would take the bullet. I'd love my wife just like Jesus loved the church. I'd give myself for her. I'd give my life for her. Um, back to Brian Chappell's book, he quotes an author, Karen Howe, who said this, I once heard a Christian minister spend an hour talking on the role of husbands and wives. He spent 59 minutes discussing the woman's need to submit and obey, and one minute summing up the husband's role. It was his grand finale. Men, you must love your wives as Christ loved the church, and what does that mean? Dramatic pause. It means you must be willing to die for her. He sat down and colorful images raced through my mind of my husband leaping in front of an oncoming bull or offering himself to cannibals in my stead. <laughs> she goes on to say, though, in the midst of uh, real life with children and cleaning and daily schedules, she says this, most women do not want their husbands to die for them. They want their men to live for them. Okay, now how did Christ give himself for his church? He gave his very life for her. But he didn't just die for her. He also lived for her. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, not just in death, but also in life. Have you ever thought about this? Why didn't Jesus simply die in infancy? Okay? If he needed to die on our behalf, why? Why go through all the real living? Why go through all the miracles, all the teaching? all the real hands-on ministry that he did, all the real fighting temptation that he did. Because Jesus didn't just die for us, he lived for us, on our behalf, for us in all the nitty-gritty parts of life. And husbands, giving yourself up for your wives doesn't simply mean literally dying if the opportunity gives itself. It means living for them 
every day. And this is where the real struggle in loving our wives is really found, in the daily stuff, not in the heroics. When you are both exhausted, but there are still children to feed and dishes to do, and you just want to escape, but you choose not to, and instead you say, what can I do next? When you look at your spouse, whether it's for the first time in the first week of being married or for the 10,000th time in the 40th year of marriage, and you think something like this, why in the world is she doing that that way? Instead of taking over and doing it your way, you step in and help doing it her way, and you might even begin to realize this, that her way actually brings an insight, a creativity to the task that you never could have envisioned before, never thought of by yourself. It means when you know that there is tension with your wife and you just want to ignore it and hope it will go away, and maybe she wants that too, but instead you step into the middle of all the relational confusion instead of backing away from it, and you say, honey, we need to talk. You see, loving our wives means living for them and not simply dying for them. The same Jesus who went to the cross for us spent the evening before his death with his disciples washing their feet. Remember that scene, John 13. Jesus says this to them, You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Loving, loving our wives means not simply dying for them, but living for them as well. But here's the thing, husbands, if you are going to do that, then you must, you must know the reality of Christ's love for you. You must know the reality of Christ's love in your life. Because you can't love this way, the way this passage calls us to, without knowing and resting on the love of Christ for you. You simply can't. Without knowing and having this love yourself, this passage will crush you. One of two things will happen. Either you're going to end up avoiding the real depths of love that this passage calls us to. Okay, your marriage may be pleasant, but will never be profound. You may give your wife flowers, but you will never give her your heart. A number of years ago, I was with some friends, and we were swimming in the ocean, and we were um, snorkeling and looking over this, this long coral reef. And we came to the end of the reef, and we could just see the ocean shelf just drop down, and it became deep and blue, fathomless, and terrifying. And some of us look at our marriages this way. I don't know if I have what it takes or how I would even go about loving my wife that way. And so we back away from the edge, back into the shallow water. You're going to avoid the real depths of love this passage calls you to. Or the second thing, you're going to try this and eventually you're going to give up in utter despair because you can't seem to get it quite right. Because you find in Christ a high moral standard, an example to follow, but you haven't found in him yet a savior to rescue you, a Lord who can forgive you. You see, if you don't know the love of Jesus at work in your own life, the one who brings healing in our brokenness, the one who brings forgiveness in our many repeated failures, then you're never going to have the courage to step into this because your failure will crush you and there's no way out of it. Brothers, the gospel that offer, offers you this very same Jesus, the one who died for you and who lives for you, 
the one who forgives you and leads you in love. You have to know him if you're going to love and lead your wife in this way. Only in Christ are you going to be free to love your spouse without that love either crushing either her or you. It's not going to crush you or her because for the first time you're going to be free to actually love her without trying to control her or manage her. And it won't crush you because your failure now no longer has the final word in your life. But the forgiveness of Christ does. And this is the point of this sermon and of every sermon. The gospel is held out for you. And if you're going to step into this kind of love, you have to know it for you. The pattern of love is Christ's love for his church. Now, the second thing, Paul gives a second pattern. Look in verse 28. He says that we are to love our wives, love our spouses, as you love your own body. Okay, now this might sound a little anticlimactic after talking about the heights of this sacrificial love that looks like Christ. He now says, love your wife as your own body. But the thing is, it actually fits perfectly. Remember the way Jesus boils down the the commandments of Scripture for his people. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said this encompasses everything. Husbands, your wife is your closest neighbor. She's the one you are most intimately connected with, the one where you are called most fully to live out that command to love your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. Because Paul tells us and reminds us, in marriage, loving your spouse and loving yourself are really the same thing. Look where he goes in verse 31. He comes to a quotation. This goes back to Genesis 2, 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Husband and wife are one flesh. Deepest connection you can know with another person. And it means that this relationship takes priority over all other human relationships. This is how Christ loved us. He joined himself to us. Verse 30, right before that quote, he says, because we are members of his body. We are members of Christ's body. And then he, he gives us that quote from Genesis. Genesis. He says, the only thing that comes close to showing a picture of the love of Christ for his bride is the connection between a husband and a wife. We are members of his body, the pattern of love. And then finally, the purpose of love. Look with me at verse 26 and 27. Paul tells us in this passage, there is a, there's a purpose for a love. We are up to something when we're trying to love our wives. So let me ask you this. What is your purpose in loving your wife? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you aiming for? Now, some of us all the time, and all of us at least some of the time, are just going through the motions of loving our wives. No sense of purpose. No real thought. No creative effort. No goal. You know what it's like. Your head's down, you're grinding through the work, you're trying to keep life afloat for just one more day. And we lose that ability to look up and think again, what are we doing all of this for? That's understandable. Life has that effect on us. It's understandable, but it's also deadly for your marriage. Just like it's deadly in every other area of your life. What would happen in the business world if this, when this goes on, when a company loses sight of the, of the ultimate goal, when, the, when a company loses sight of what they're trying to accomplish and they're just cranking out the widgets for the day? No strategic plan. Sooner or later, everything's going to come crashing down because you always have to be looking ahead and remembering what you are doing and where you are heading. You see, Paul tells us that love does something. It shapes us and shapes the people that we love. 
And he tells us that we are all shaping our wives even right now. The question is, to what end or towards what goal? What is your goal for your spouse? That my wife will be happy. That my, wa- that my wife will make me happy. That my wife will not complain. That my wife will give me space for my own pursuits. That my wife will love me back. What is your love or your lack of love for your spouse doing in your wife's life? Okay, let's look at Christ's purpose in loving. Again, verse 26 and 27. It says, we're supposed to, if our love is supposed to look like Christ's love for the church, what does he tell us about that? Christ loved the church, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's purpose is the holiness, the splendor, the beauty, the completion of his beloved, his church. And then how does he accomplish this? Look in verse 29. Nourishing her, cherishing her. What's he doing? He is working for the beauty and the goodness of his spouse, bringing out beauty that he might present her to himself in splendor. Christ gave himself to this task, both in life and in death, loving his bride, the church, this way, and he calls us to this himself. Husbands, this is what your love is for. This is what your calling is, to love your wives in this way, in such a way that you bring out all that Christ has for her, the beauty, the holiness, the splendor. Your love for your wife should encourage and foster, enable, uncover all of these things in your spouse's life, not suppress them or smother them or obscure them. Maybe you've had friends, young women that you knew maybe in high school or college. You knew them when they were single. Uh, you knew what their lives were like. Maybe you stood with some of them in, your we- in their wedding. And then years go by and you run into that person again. And what has happened to her in that time? Has marriage to their husband somehow made them less the person than you once knew? Has it tended to obscure their beauty? Has it robbed them of their old confidence, their old vitality? Or has their marriage brought out and refined and deepened the beauty that you remember in your friend? Has her marriage made her more of what she could be rather than less? Husbands, our, our calling in our marriages is the same, same purpose as Christ's love for his church, the good and the beauty of our spouses. Now let me address one objection that I think it's easy to, to feel if you're a woman. And a woman I know very well has expressed this one to me. Here's the thing, you, you, if you're following the logic of Paul's argument, you read this and you think, you know, what a great picture of what husbands are called to be. But in, but in this analogy, wives have to be the church. And that hardly seems fair. I mean, you feel the weight of that maybe? It feels like the husbands have this great high calling and the wives, we're just, we're just the church. But let me just say three things. First, we need to hear what Paul is saying here and not read into what he's, he's not saying. He is telling husbands how to love their wives. He's not saying everything about marriage. He's not addressing all shaping and encouraging and love that creative and powerfully comes into a marriage. He's not saying all of that. And he's most emphatically not saying that husbands have it all together, but wives are a mess. He is saying, and here's what you need to hear. Hear what he is saying. 
Husbands, love your wives. Now, the second thing is we tend to, when we think of the church, we tend to think of the church in all its blemishes rather than in all its beauty. Okay, the church is weak, it's full of hypocrites, it never seems to get it quite right. Listen to what John Stott says about this, about the church. On earth, she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted, but one day she'll be seen for what she is. Nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. Paul's eyes are on what the church will be. Paul looks at the church and he says, in all of, cre- in all of the created universe, this stands at the heart of God's love, of everything that he made, his people. He puts his love on his people. He brings beauty to his people. When Paul says the word church, he sees beautiful and radiant, the gem of all creation. That's what Paul sees when he sees the church. But third thing, if you feel the weight of that when you read this, husband gets to be the, is compared to Jesus, I'm compared to the church. Let me just ask you this simple, simple question. Don't you want your husbands to love you like this? Don't you want him to find you beautiful like this? Don't you want him to find you beautiful on the days when nothing you own seems to fit right or look right? Don't you want him to love you like this on the days when you can't seem to say the right thing or do the right thing? Don't you want him to love you like this in the middle of all your failings and your weaknesses? Don't you want your husband to pursue you and love you and engage you even and especially on the days when you've given up on yourselves. See, Paul isn't saying that husbands don't need many of these same things themselves, but he is saying, husbands, love your wives like this. Love your wives the way Christ loves his church. Husbands, the ministry of your wife, definition of marriage, means loving her with a purpose. Loving her in the way Christ does, that we might be holy and radiant, full of life and splendor. And that means that you're going to have to be engaged in your marriage, bringing all of your strength, your creativity, your attention, your resources to this relationship for the good of your spouse. You see, if you have strengths or a purposefulness, dedication, passion that maybe you bring to your career or that you bring to your recreation or anything else in your life, but you're not also bringing it and primarily bringing it to your spouse, then you are robbing her. Loving your wife is the priority in your life, second only to loving God. Let me go as far as to say this. For a Christian husband, loving your wife is in fact one way in which you actually live out and express your love for God. Husbands, how do you you love Jesus? One important way is by loving your spouse. Marriage is that important, that central. Let me just say this in conclusion. Look at verse 32 and 33. Verse 33, Paul wraps up this whole passage. He says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let his wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. He wraps it up. But look look in verse 32. This remarkable mystery. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Paul's making a subtle and important point. He's not saying, you know, I was trying to think of how to address marriage, and I scratched my head and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, a really good illustration of marriage 
would be to talk about Jesus loving his church. Okay, it's, it's the reverse of that. He says the fundamental reality from before time began was that Christ was going to put his love on his people. How can we show that? How can we demonstrate that? And God creates the relationship of marriage that we might taste something of the intimacy with which Christ loves his church. This illustration, this life of marriage on both sides, husband and wife, draw us back to this fundamental reality, the true lover of our souls, Jesus himself. And let me leave you simply with this. Some of us are thinking, is there any real hope for my marriage, whether you're one year into that or many years into that? I was in a doctor's office um, about a week ago, and on the, on the back of the doctor's door, they had this uh, poster that tells you, it was called Within 20 Minutes of Quitting Smoking. Okay, it tells you what happens when you quit smoking. Here's what it says. Within 20 minutes after you smoke that last cigarette, your body begins a series of changes that continue for years. 20 minutes after quitting, your heart rate drops. 12 hours after quitting, carbon monoxide level in your blood drops to normal. Two weeks to three months after quitting, your heart attack risk begins to drop. Your lung function begins to improve. One year after quitting, your added risk of coronary heart disease is half that of a smoker's. And 10 years after quitting, your lung cancer rate is about half that of a smoker's. Your risk of cancers of the mouth, throat, esophagus, bladder, kidney, and pancreas decreases. Now, however long you've been in the middle of your marriage, if you find yourself at this point saying, is there hope for our marriage? The answer in the gospel is yes. Because Christ reverses the damage that we do. And the call of this passage is looking to Jesus, step into the roles of your marriage. And Paul says it bluntly, wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. And see the healing and restoring work that Christ can and will bring about in your marriage. There is hope for your marriage. It can begin to heal. And we can see small tastes of that in 20 minutes and two weeks and one year and 10 years into this as Jesus is at work. Step into your marriage and see what Christ will do. And may our marriages not simply survive but flourish. May they not only cease to grind, but may they begin to really sing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you needy in every area of our life, and certainly in this, in our marriages. May you, Father, breathe this kind of life into our marriages. Help us to step into our roles, and Jesus, stoop down and hold us as we flounder and fail. May you be glorified in us. May your love shine brightly in our marriages, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing.